Welcome to Hacking for Cash, an SP podcast on state-sponsored campaigns of cyber espionage for commercial gain. My name is Bart Holderwey. In our previous episode, we discussed the ins and outs of the political agreements between the US and China, as well as among the leaders of the G20, which resulted in a commitment that no country should engage in or support cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property. We learned that back in 2015, the issue of state-sponsored forms of economic cyber espionage had become chefsache, national security concerns that were dealt with at the level of heads of government and heads of state. But we also heard that from the outset there were concerns about the degree to which signatories were able to monitor malicious state behavior and the willingness to abide by agreed norms. Today, my colleague Gatwa Piandita speaks with Dustin McCormack and Kelly Above, both work as cybersecurity analysts at the MITRE Corporation. MITRE is a US non-for-profit research and engineering company. And among other things, they developed the Attack Framework, a globally accepted knowledge base to categorize and analyze the tactics and techniques used by hackers. They talk about the actors behind cyber espionage campaigns. They unpack this phenomenon of APTs, the Advanced Persistent Threat Actors, and how they are targeting intellectual property and other assets of economic and commercial value. Gatra, over to you. Well, thanks, Bart. Today, I'll talk about what we mean by cyber-enabled IP theft or intellectual property theft, also known as economic cyber espionage. In particular, we will not only be talking about how it works, but also how governments and organizations can best respond to this threat. Now, joining me today are two experts in the field of cyber threat intelligence. First, we have Kelly Abouf. Kelly is a cybersecurity engineer at MITRE, focused on cyber threat intelligence analysis. Prior to joining MITRE, she graduated from Cornell University with a major in political science and a minor in computer science in China and Asia Pacific studies. And we're also joined by Dustin McCormick. Now, Dustin is also a cyber threat intelligence analyst at MITRE. He has over 10 years of experience as an intelligence analyst, five of which focused on cyber intelligence. Dustin has a focus on Asia Pacific cyber threat activity, and he joined MITRE in 2022. Kelly and Dustin, welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for inviting us, Gotcha. Um, pleasure. For coming on the podcast. First, I'd like to talk about the hackers. Hackers obviously come in many stripes and forms. Some are lone wolves, others are part of criminal organizations who hack for financial gain. And there are also hackers who specifically go for assets of strategic relevance to their nation. This includes intellectual property, such as information pertaining to patents and sensitive business information. So Dustin, to start off with a basic question, who hacks for intellectual property? It's a great question. In the Robin Security, hacks... And who who's a hacker? It's kind of a catch-all phrase that kind of describes just you know cyber actors who manipulate manipulate processes um, to optimize for a particular outcome. And for cyber actors, that's the the ability to get into a network and to collect and exfiltrate that data. Or for cyber criminals, maybe to to destroy or manipulate services against the organization's intended purpose. The levels and intentions are what kind of separate and distinguish different threat actors. There are malicious threat actors, and those are ones who obviously go against the intended purpose versus what we call white hats, vulnerability researchers, those who look for the vulnerabilities in order to uplift security for all, whether that's vulnerability disclosures or to patch vulnerable systems. Yeah, so to return to your question about who hacks for intellectual property theft, it's mostly state-sponsored cyber actors who we see do this. Though we do see some corporate espionage, and even when criminal groups get their hands on intellectual property information, they may sell it to states. 
And the reason that states are conducting intellectual property theft, including through cyber-enabled means, is to gain unjust access to sensitive information or technology that's going to advance their national economic or geopolitical goals. We've heard you talk about who the hackers, generally speaking, are. I now want to talk a bit about the tools and ask what are the toolkits that these hackers use. Now, this sounds like a simple question, but I know it's not. And I know MITRE has done a lot of work on this subject. But how do hackers steal intellectual property? What are the common tactics? Yeah, so how they do it is can be a very complex answer because um, there's multiple ways you can describe it. Not to get into the nitty-gritty of it, but there's different models to how to frame how um, an intrusion takes place. But in terms of trying to simplify it, there's one called the initial access. And whether you think of you know a spear phishing email that comes in that wants you to collect a malicious link or a vulnerability in a server that gets exploited to establish a foothold in the network, um, there's going to be these initial steps in order to just gain that access to a target network. Again, not want to get into nitty gritty, but there's subsequent steps that threat actors will usually pull in their own set of tools, as well as use as administrative tools found within the network, also called living off the land, in order to maneuver, collect data, and discover more of what's around the environment. And talking back to Cali, looking for those crown jewels. What, where's that intellectual property? Where's that sensitive data? And searching through the different accounts and the servers and, and the data stores in order to find that. And then lastly, once they have found those crown jewels, you know that, that prize data is exfiltrating that. Yeah, and exfiltration can happen through a variety of different means, through using like the victim's own infrastructure or using the cyber actors' own infrastructure. And they're typically going to be stealthy at this point, but this is also where a victim can try to identify what has been taken so and potentially even stop it in the moment. So just on these crown jewels, how do we establish what sensitive business information or other forms of intellectual property has been stolen? Because oftentimes when we go through, say, cybersecurity reports, they would talk about, you know, 30 multinational corporations have been hacked. And, you know, they would say that items relating to green technology have been stolen. But how do we know that this has been the case? It's hard to know exactly. And so kind of one of our recommendations from earlier was putting that alerting and monitoring focus on the crown jewels. So that way, hopefully you can identify it. Yeah. And if I can step in. So I guess there's, there'll be two ways to look at it, as, as Callie kind of alluded to in a very proactive manner, looking at the threat landscape and doing that self-assessment and doing that risk management, understanding, you know, as an organization. So take green energy, like you mentioned. You know, what is very important for that organization to run, like what copyrights and trademarks, what business secrets that or sensitive information that you have that is critical for your business to look at and to operate and identifying where they located or who um, controls that information and building a security apparatus to protect that. That's on the proactive side and the reactive side, you know, in incident response and in the investigative process. It's more of trying to follow the, the threat actor as they maneuver around the network and with the knowledge of where those crown jewels are located, kind of piece together what's going on. And one, if you're properly secured for at least the future, and two, understanding if that threat actor, you know, talking about motivations again, what are they after? Are they after to hurt you organizationally, steal your data, just disrupt operations, deploy ransomware, and understanding the geopolitical and economic context that you are operating in and what factors may lead to that threat actor 
from targeting you. Right. So earlier in the conversation, it was mentioned that the intentions of the hackers are a key factor to identify or group them. But how do we determine what a hacking group's motivations are? How do we know, for example, that hackers are really after intellectual property? And how do you know that they're related to uh, the state? Well, a hacker's motivation is going to probably bring them towards a certain industry or region. So we see companies that are in the technology, energy, or manufacturing areas. Those are the companies that are most likely to attract state-sponsored actors. However, that doesn't mean that they only focus on these areas, and state-sponsored actors may also target other areas. Yeah, and if I could step in here, talk about like a hacker group's motivations. Speaking generalities, um, the motivations can be apparent when observing the intrusion in itself. itself. So state-sponsored actors are usually well-resourced, and they're you know, defined entities. And being state-sponsored, they're kind of synonymous with the term APT, or Advanced Persistent Threats. And just as the, the title kind of suggests, they are relentless and sophisticated actors who are trained to infiltrate these networks undetected, exercising an immense amount of patience and technical expertise. You know, these motivations are also aligned because of state-sponsored geopolitical and economic goals. This can contrast to other threat actors such as cybercrime or say corporate espionage, where they may not have such technical expertise or the amount of patience or operational security to operate in such a different manner. Due to their sophistication for state-sponsored actors, there are instances where organizations and cybersecurity may not know state-sponsored actors have infiltrated the network long until after the crime has been committed. Compounding factor to that is the lag time to the investigative process, you know, collecting the data and understanding the intrusion and discovery before conducting that attribution of, oh, this is, you know, APT, whatever. Yeah. And as Dustin said, the motivation behind an intrusion may become clear while we're analyzing it. Specifically, we can identify what the adversary is attempting to access or exfiltrate. Because in the case of cyber-enabled intellectual property, that's probably what they're going for. So that means that victims should understand their crown jewels. Crown jewels are a term that refers to the most sensitive and prized assets in the network. So if we can identify what our crown jewels are, and if they are taken, then that leads us towards the motivation. Dustin and Kelly are referring to some characteristics that distinguish state-sponsored hackers from others, and that distinguishes economic cyber espionage from other forms of intelligence collection. They refer to state-sponsored campaigns being relentless and sophisticated, where the operators have the time and are patient in accessing their targets and are also resourceful in terms of skill, techniques, and financial means. Now, they also talk about targeting of certain industries, sectors, or companies that you would normally not expect to be on the radar for conventional forms of espionage and intelligence collection. Now, the latter would include government agencies, defense industry, and so on. But pharmaceutical companies or renewable energy developers are not the sectors you would normally expect to find in typical intelligence activity. Justin and Kelly, you both mentioned that the most likely perpetrators behind the theft of intellectual property through cyber means are advanced persistent threat actors, or APTs. How do you determine that a hacking operation is in fact conducted by a state-sponsored hacking group and not, for example, by a criminal organization? Yeah, this is a really difficult question and one that we call, it's a question that we call attribution. That's like knowing and making assessments about who the hackers are based on their activities. So in that case, we're basically going to look at the tools that they use and the certain tactics, techniques, and procedures or TTPs 
that they use. And based on how a hacker moves through the network, how they get into the network, what specific tools that they use while they're there, we can analyze their tradecraft and make an educated guess as to who they are. This is where kind of we get this circus tent of names in the cyber threat intelligence community like Fancy Bear and uh, Cobalt Gypsy, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and if I can jump in on that, you know, speaking to the, the tradecraft that is attribution, there's varying levels of attribution. As Callie mentioned, there could be attribution to a level of just this mysterious group of, of the cyber ether webs, but also down to a level of detail of individuals and organizations that conduct these cyber activities. Recent examples can be, if you look at the United States Department of Justice indictment for several members of both Russian and Chinese cyber threat actors, APT-41 and 40 come to mind, most prominently in my mind right now, but also industry reporting that direct towards certain organizations, such as the recent uh, mandate report on APT-43, which aligned to North Korea's reconnaissance bureau. Now, the term attribution was mentioned a couple of times. Can you just give us a short description of what this means? What do you mean by attribution? Sure thing. Uh, <laughs> not, not to give like a Webster dictionary definition, but it's for attribution is pretty much taking an, an incident or a cluster of activity and then establishing a connection between either a particular group or organization within a larger context. So if, you know, a manufacturing company is targeted, yeah, you know, aligning that to, oh, this larger campaign of targeting the manufacturing industry, or if they're located in a particular geographic area and there is geopolitical tensions occurring, aligning those things together. In terms of, you know, the important role that they can play in cybersecurity, like I mentioned before, doing a threat landscape assessment, a risk management assessment, having an understanding of attribution plays a critical role in conducting that threat landscape, understanding what threat actors are out there and what their goals and intentions are, and if you fit the victim profile against those entities. Why is it important that government organizations attribute? So attribution is useful for multiple aspects. That's kind of the, you know, the series of questions coming on. For governments and larger organizations, in particular for the cybersecurity community, attribution plays a great role in sharing information in a contextual manner. It's easy to be a little desensitized to the slew of of ongoing breaches and cybersecurity incidences without any additional context. Looking at ransomware, the, the news of ransomware kind of dies out because there's just so much going on versus enabling attribution kind of puts this, you know, shrouded cybersecurity hooded figure into a light and in an image that can be easily consumable to the cybersecurity community, but also to those looking into the industry and the landscape. For governments, it's a great way for information sharing, but also to drive policy, whether that is to for cyber capacity building or for national security emphasis. For companies, while there are you know rivaling competitors, sharing information is the sea that rises all boats. Organizations that are non-partisan in a sense of like ISACs and information sharing groups provide those mediums where for baseline defense across industries and across geographies allow for a better defense. We talked about the hackers and that those targeted intellectual property are often very persistent, resourceful, and sophisticated in their tools, and about the crown jewels that organizations would need to identify before being able to protect them. 
Can you tell us how businesses and governments can best respond to the threat of economic cyberespionage? Well, the best answer, but it's unrealistic, is to prevent it from happening in the first place. So we really focus on, like, assume that there will be a breach. And so planning is the most important. That's why we in Cyber Threat Intelligence care so much about providing intelligence to the defender so they can understand what they need to focus on the most and prioritize in that way. Yeah, and so internally, that's like looking at and establishing your good cybersecurity posture. That means everything from ensuring all your security measures are in place, conducting tabletop exercises, red teaming and purple teaming, and properly configuring identity and access management, instant response plans, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and she mentioned internally, but externally for governments, it's establishing those lines of communication. It's easier to communicate and respond as a collective whole when you already know the point of contacts. So like I mentioned before, there's the ISACs or the information sharing and analysis centers. Those are non-governmental, but there's also government's programs, at least on the United States side. So if you think of the Joint Cyber Defense Collective under the sponsorship of CISA or the FBI's InfraGuard as just two examples of government sponsorship of information sharing for the greater defense. In Australia in late 2022, we've seen quite a series of major data breaches, in particular the ones affecting Optus, which is Australia's second largest telecoms operator, and those affecting Medibank, a medical insurance company. In all these cases, millions of personal data were exposed. Big corporations are vulnerable to not only data breaches, but of course, also intellectual property theft. Considering this, how can small organizations protect themselves against the threat of cyber intrusions, especially ones sponsored by states, which obviously involves a lot more resources and perseverance? It's a good question, and it's tough to approach that question without being a little fatalistic, particularly for the smaller organizations. But an organization that is smaller doesn't necessarily mean they may be at risk. As we mentioned before, having that threat landscape assessment and that risk assessment is what's really important in understanding and and properly preparing your security. If properly managed, a smaller organization may have some certain advantages. Just because they are smaller, they may not be as well known and have that notoriety that makes them a juicier target per se. There are a few steps to do to protect themselves from cyber intrusions, some that which Callie mentioned, but in addition to those is making sure that you follow standards of cybersecurity practices, ensure that there's an operational security program of some sort, and ensure timely patching of your assets to reduce the risk landscape. All of these armed to make an organization less attractive to a target, but of course, these are the same kind of practices that larger organizations should also be practicing as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dustin and Kelly. This has been a very interesting discussion. Thanks for having us. No, thanks for having us, Gotcha. Back to you, Bart. Thank you, Gatva, and thank you to Dustin and Kelly and the wider team at MITRE for being able to shed some light on who these hackers are, how they operate, and how we identify them as state-sponsored hackers. We heard them talk about a number of things when it comes to being able to know your crown jewels, know your commercial assets, your assets of research and development, innovation, and intellectual property. And when it comes to knowing and understanding the broader cyber threat landscape, both tactically as well as geoeconomically. Governments have a responsibility to provide industry with certain resources, such as threat intelligence and recommended cybersecurity standards, and to be engaged in attributions. You need to be able to call a spade a spade in order to raise awareness across the economy and move organizations into lifting their cybersecurity posture 
in particular when they operate in areas of high economic value or in sensitive technologies. Once again, thanks Katra. In the next episode, we'll focus on intellectual property. What is it? How is it protected? And how much does cybersecurity play a role in discussions on intellectual property protection these days? We contrast views from the US and China. We hear from a former Director General of the World Intellectual Property Organization. Thanks for listening. Until the next episode of Hacking for Cash, an ASPI special podcast on state-sponsored campaigns of cyber espionage for commercial gain.